Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 90, Love That Dirty Water. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. For many people, summertime in Boston means a time of canoeing, kayaking, paddleboarding, fishing, and even swimming in the rivers that run through and around our city. To celebrate the season, this week, we're combining three classic episodes, 378 Years on the Motherbrook, Vikings on the Charles, and Canoodling on the Charles, which contains my favorite line from any episode. Cheese it! It's the fuzz! But before we hear these stories of industry, adventure, and romance on the water, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For our featured historic site, we're highlighting the Waterworks Museum, which interprets a unique story of one of the country's first metropolitan water systems through exhibitions and educational programs on engineering, architecture, social history, and public health. Per the museum's website, in the summer of 1876, the formation of the Boston Water Board signaled a major step forward. The new board replaced the Cassituate and Mystic Water Boards. In its first report, the board noted the importance of a high-service station at Chestnut Hill. Such a station was needed to provide water to the higher regions of the city. When the Chestnut Hill pumping station opened in 1887, it was equipped with two Holly Gaskell pumping engines, each with a capacity of 8 million gallons a day. The high-service pumping station, now housing the Metropolitan Waterworks Museum, was designed by architect Arthur H. Venal in 1886 and 1887, and then seamlessly expanded by Edmund M. Wheelwright in 1897 and 1898. The building was constructed at the height of what is sometimes referred to as Boston's Golden Age, a period of great prosperity that lasted from the Civil War through World War I. The centerpiece of the Waterworks Museum is its collection of giant steam engines. Three original, coal-powered, steam-driven water pumps are preserved at the museum and are monuments to 19th century technology and innovation. Levitt, Worthington, and Alice stand in the Great Engines Hall and reach more than three stories tall. Walk around each and see the multitude of perfectly engineered parts that pumped millions of gallons of fresh water a day into the city of Boston. Located on the Chestnut Hill Reservoir, the museum is open Wednesday through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. The museum is free for general admission, but donations are very welcome. The Waterworks is a small, private, nonprofit organization that maintains and preserves the historic building and its collections. They suggest $5 a person to help support their education and preservation efforts. And for our upcoming event this week, on Monday, July 30th at 6.30 p.m., Anthony Samarco will give a slide lecture on molasses, from slave trade to the Great Flood at the Alston branch of the BPL. The BPL calendar doesn't have any more details, but it still sounds pretty good to us. If you want to study up a bit, you can check out episode 73 for first-hand accounts of the molasses flood. And now it's time for this week's main topic. First up is corn, cotton, and condos along the Motherbrook. This connector between the Charles River and the Neponset River was America's first industrial canal built by Puritan settlers in the earliest days of Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was vital to the development of Dorchester, Hyde Park, and Dedham. Dams and mills were constructed at five locations called Privileges in Dedham and in what is now the Reedville section of Hyde Park. 
the mother brook provided water power at various times for industrial mills for the manufacture of cotton, wool, paper, wire, and carpets. In episode 58, we explained how all of this came to be. The Puritan colonists, led by John Winthrop, who came to settle in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, traveled first to Salem in April, then settled in Charlestown, before finally moving across the river to Boston in late summer. Fearing attack by the neighboring Native Americans and mindful of the possibility of famine, the settlers spread out from Watertown to Boston and from Charlestown to Dorchester. It was too late in the season to begin planting field crops for the year, so they would have to rely mostly on imports from England to get them through the coming winter. Unfortunately, that message seems to have gotten mixed up on the way back to Old England. In late August of 1630, the New England chronology records, It having been reported in England that there were now provisions enough here, diverse ships came not so well supplied as otherwise they would, and there being miserable damage of our provisions at sea, and yet some imprudently selling much of the remainder to the Indians for beaver, we fall into great and threatening straits for want of food. The mortality increasing, many died weekly, gay almost daily, so that the ships being now on their return, some for England, some for Ireland, there was not much less than an hundred, some think many more, partly out of dislike of our government, which restrained and punished their excesses, and partly through fear of famine, not seeing other means than by their labor to feed themselves, returned back, and glad we were to be rid of them. In the years to come, these hungry months would be a strong incentive to the Puritans for getting their crops in, tending them jealously, and making the most of every harvest. They would have planted wheat, rye, barley, and oats. The oats were intended largely for the horses, while barley was set aside for brewing beer. At a time when every source of drinking water was a potential source of deadly contagions, it made sense that they believed beer to be a healthier drink for the whole family. Unfortunately, none of their English grains thrived at first in the New World. There wasn't enough barley to stock a family with the beer their children needed to grow up big and strong, and there wasn't enough wheat to allow them to bake the breads they knew from home. At the time, the English made fluffy white bread that wasn't too different from the white bread we all know and love today, but New England bread was a different animal. Luckily for our Puritan forebears, there was a grain native to the Americas that grew plentifully from Mexico City to Maine. The English dialect of the time considered any grain to be corn, so this new introduction was called Indian corn. It was maize, or simply corn as we call it, and it quickly became a staple in the New England diet. During the early years, the settlers of Massachusetts Bay would have eaten a lot of thirded bread. It was called that because it was made from rye, wheat, and Indian corn in equal proportions. During the earliest years of the settlement, the grains would have been ground by hand, probably by women. There were two techniques for this. The first was to grind the grains by hand, using two hard stones. The top stone would have a hole through it, which the grain was poured in, then it was rotated until the grain was ground finely enough to find its way out from between the stones. The other technique was a traditional Native American method using a large mortar and pestle made out of oak and pounding the whole grain into flour. Either of these methods would have been difficult and time-consuming, and it resulted in flour that was quite different from what we're used to today. Milling grain by hand meant that the entire kernel made it into the flour, 
rather than being bolted or sifted out and leaving pure white flour behind. Puritan flour typically included both the wheat bran and the wheat germ, as well as the white flour. In 2015, we attended an event hosted by the Partnership of the Historic Bostons, where we got to sample Puritan foods. As part of the event, we got to try some thirded bread that had been made using traditional methods at Plymouth Plantation. The milling techniques of the Puritans' separatist neighbors were similar enough that we probably ate bread very much like that of the early years in Boston. It was rich, chewy, and pretty good. It's easy to see why any demonstration loaves made at Plymouth Plantation sell out almost instantly. With the production of flour taking up so much time that could be devoted to other labor, and resulting in a somewhat unfamiliar form of bread, you can see why the early settlers of Massachusetts Bay were eager to find a better way to grind their grain. As early as 1631, the first grist mill in the colony was established at Watertown. This early enterprise was a windmill, of a design similar to the traditional mills we've all seen in children's books or articles about the Dutch. Long, graceful arms hold cloth sails that catch the wind to spin a shaft that turns the grindstones. The entire mill rotates on a central hub, allowing the face to be turned into the wind. It's a design that originated in England in the 1100s, and my great-aunt's family operated one in the countryside near London right up until World War II. Unfortunately for the proprietors of the windmill at Watertown, it only seemed to work when the wind was coming out of the west. In 1632, the government of the colony decided that the mill should be moved. They chose a spot on top of a hill so that the mill could turn to catch a favorable wind from any direction, and they chose a spot that was centrally located for more of the population. As a history of Boston's North End puts it, The colonial government decided to move the windmill as early as 1632, and although there were many hills in Watertown, Charlestown, Roxbury, and other places, the government chose Copps Hill in the North End. Because residents of other towns would have to travel to this windmill until they had mills of their own, the most convenient location for the windmill was near the ferries in the river, where it could be approached by boat on a regular basis. Indeed, the 1723 Bonner map of Boston that we reference so often shows a tiny hand-drawn windmill next to the burying ground at the top of what was then known as Snow Hill, just steps from the waterfront. As the population of the colony grew swiftly during the Great Migration period, Having the entire population come to Copps Hill to grind their grain didn't remain practical for very long. Towns throughout the area searched for solutions to this problem using the natural resources they had at hand. Dorchester, which was an independent town encompassing far more territory than Dorchester does today, had a population rivaling Boston's in the early 1630s. It also had access to the Neponset River. That resource allowed the town to establish the first water-powered gristmill in New England in 1633. The town records from November 3rd of that year say, It is generally agreed that Mr. Israel Stoughton shall build a water mill, if he see cause. The said Mr. Stoughton doth promise not to sell away the said mill without the consent of the plantation first had and received. The town of Dorchester would grant Israel Stoughton land and timber to build the mill if he operated it for the benefit of the plantation and charged reasonable rates. The following spring, Stoughton erected a dam across the Neponset at a small waterfall just above the tidal basin. His mill hugged the northern bank of the river with a water wheel driving the grindstones. 130 years later, 
This site would be the Baker Chocolate Mill at Dorchester Lower Mills. Today, it's where the Adams Street Bridge crosses the river, frequently congested with traffic coming from Dot Ave and Adams Washington River and Morton Streets. In 1634, the mill was on the far outskirts of the settlement, but today's traffic reflects how quickly it became an important crossroads. Adam Street was built to link the mill to the more densely settled northern part of Dorchester, and Washington Street was laid out by 1654 as a cartway between the mill and the settlement at Roxbury. Israel Stoughton's mill was just the first to be sighted along the Neponset River, beginning what would become centuries of industrial use. Over 200 years later, the city of Dorchester set out to design an official seal in 1865, near the height of the use of the water wheels to power mill. Three buildings were chosen to represent the town's early settlement. The first church, representing the Puritan piety of the settlers. A small thatched schoolhouse, representing the importance of the colony's first free school and Israel Stoughton's mill, representing industry. The Dorchester Historical Society says that the rude mill, with its large wheel, is seen upon the left bank of the Neponset River, the course of which river, from its source to its mouth, lay through the ancient territory of Dorchester. Similar water-powered mills were built at Watertown and Roxbury later in 1634, and in Salem, Ipswich, and Newbury by 1636. Charlestown got a windmill in 1636, and Boston added a second one. However, two mills subject to the fickle winds were not enough to keep the growing population of Boston stocked with ground flour. There was also another drawback to windmills, as noted in the town records of Boston in June 1642. The windmill at the north end of the town was struck by lightning, shattering the upper sail in many pieces, and, missing the stones, entered the standard, rived it down in three parts to the bottom, and one of the spars, and the main standard being bound about with a great iron hoop fastened with many long spikes, it was plucked off, broken in the middle, and thrown upon the floor, and the boards upon the sides of the mill rived off, the sacks in the mill set on fire, and the miller, being under the mill upon the ground, chopping a piece of the board, was struck dead. But company coming in found him to breathe, and within an hour or two he began to stir, and strove with such force as six men could scarce hold him down. The next day he came to his senses, but knew nothing of what had befallen him, but found himself very sore. His hair on one side of his head and beard was singed, one of his shoes torn off his foot, but his foot not hurt. So you can see why windmills might be falling out of fashion. Boston didn't have access to a river with rapids or waterfalls it could harness to turn a water wheel, but it did need to find a way to provide a safer, more reliable means of grinding the town's grain into flour. On May 31, 1643, the town granted Henry Simons and a corporation that would be called the Proprietors of the Mill Pond the right to build a tidal mill in Boston. The Massachusetts Historical Commission describes why a tidal mill was a good choice for the young town of Boston. Tidal mills had several advantages over other types of water mills. By using salt water from the harbor, the mill could operate during the winter since the salt water wouldn't freeze like fresh water. The proprietors also didn't have to worry about a drop in water level during times of drought. Finally, with tidal mills, once a tide chart is established, the mill owner would know the precise day and time his mill would be operating. The proprietors got exclusive use of a cove between the town's north and west ends, and the town supported them with timber and labor for building. In her book, Gaining Ground, 
Nancy Seashulls describes the task at hand. The proprietors built dams from the ends of a natural causeway that already existed across the mouth of the cove in order to close off the cove completely, which then became known as the mill pond, and dug a mill creek through the neck between the mill and town coves. Water entered the mill pond at high tide from the Charles River through the floodgates in the causeway and from the town cove through the mill creek, as it came to be called. An ebb tide water flowed back out of the mill pond, powering tide mills that were near the present bend in Endicott Street and other mills at the mouth of the mill creek. The mill creek roughly followed the line of today's Rose Kennedy Greenway. One of the original millstones was discovered during the construction of the Big Dig and is now set in the sidewalk outside Boston Public Market. The mills operated from 1644 to 1804. By that time, the mills had fallen into disrepair, and the mill pond was partially filled with refuse and sewage. In 1806, the decision was made to fill in the pond, and it's now the location of the Bullfinch Triangle. After the first few years of famine and hardship, the English population of Massachusetts Bay Colony was growing rapidly. As the pace of settlement increased, new towns began to spring up around Boston. Milton and Braintree in 1634, Concord and Hingham in 1635, and then Dedham in 1636. That summer, about 30 English families traveled up the Charles River above the tidewater at Watertown in canoes. I frequently kayak the Charles through Dedham, so I know exactly what settler Moore Carew means in the conversation he recalled with Miles Courtney along that journey. The river took many turns, so that it was a burden the continual turning about. West, east, and north we turned on that same meadow and progressed none, so that I, rising in the boat, saw the river flowing just across a bit of grass in a place where I knew we had passed through nigh an hour before. More, said Miles then to me, the river is like its master, our good King Charles of sainted memory. It promises over much, but gets you nowhere. They landed at a great bend in the river, eventually entered into a covenant with one another to form a church and town, and called the new settlement Dedham. The settlers in Dedham weren't big fans of grinding their grain by hand, and they were skeptical of how effective a windmill would be given the local topography. They were inland, so they didn't have the tides with which to run a mill. Their town was founded on the banks of the River Charles, but that is a section of the Charles that's wide, slow, and placid. Great for traveling by boat, but useless for turning a water wheel to power a mill. That didn't stop the town from granting Abraham Shaw 60 acres of land in 1637 in return for building a corn mill on the Charles. The town ordered millstones to be imported from Watertown, and Shaw began work on the mill, but he died in 1638, and his heirs weren't interested in continuing the work. So Dedham went back to the drawing board. Just outside the center of town, a small stream called East Brook flowed out of a marshy area and into a low valley eventually into the Neponset River, in what was then Dorchester. The course of the stream dropped about 40 feet over three and a half miles, which was plenty to drive a wheel. Unfortunately, Eastbrook didn't really carry enough water to power a mill. The town selectmen came up with an audacious plan. What if they could divert some of the plentiful water from the Placid Charles into steep but scarce Eastbrook? On March 25, 1639, they ordered that a ditch should be dug at common charge through Upper Charles River Meadow onto Eastbrook, that it may be both a partition fence in the same 
and also may form a suitable creek unto a water-mill, that it should be found fitting to set a mill upon, in the opinion of a workman to be employed for that purpose. They were so confident in their plan that the work moved forward without waiting to enlist a new miller. As with Shaw, an offer was published to give sixty acres of land to anyone who would build and maintain a corn mill. A tax was levied on landowners in the town to pay laborers to dig a ditch 4,000 feet from the bank of the Charles to a bend in Eastbrook. On July 14, 1641, water flowed from the Charles through the canal and into the Neponset River for the first time. Dedham prides itself on having created the first industrial canal in North America. That's what happens when you identify a common community need identify an ambitious plan to get there, and then you pay your taxes to make it happen. True to the plan, a man named John Elderkin heard of the offer of free land and moved from Lynn to Dedham to establish the first mill on what was now called the Motherbrook. He built a dam across the newly swollen stream at a point near where Bussy Street crosses it today. His corn mill opened in 1641. The following year, he sold his interest in the mill with the rights going to John Allen, Nathaniel Aldis, John Dwight, and Nathaniel Whitting. In 1649, Whitting bought out the others and became the sole proprietor of the mill on Mother Brook. Soon, the demand for flour was beyond the capacity of Whitting's mill to deliver. The town granted permission to Ezra Morse to build a new mill upstream on the Mother Brook from Whitting's mill. The new enterprise was completed in the spring of 1665, and Nathaniel Whitting immediately began to complain to the selectmen. He was upset about the competition for both customers and water. As the animosity between Whitting and Morse grew, the town resolved in 1668 that, in time of drought or want of water, the water shall in no such time be raised so high by the occasion of the new mill that the water be thereby hindered of its free course or passage out of the Charles River to the mill. The proprietors of the old mill are at the same time restricted from raising the water in their ponds so high as to prejudice the new mill by flowage of backwater. However, at the same time, the selectman warned Whitting that he should be sure to repair his own leaky dam before coming back to complain about Morse again. It seems like this resolution was not quite satisfactory, because in 1699 the town records say, Forty acres of land near Neponset River are granted to Ezra Morse, in satisfaction to him for letting fall his corn mill at Motherbrook for the benefit of the meadows and the other mills. Morse would open a new mill on the upper Neponset River in a part of Dedham that now lies in Norwood, next to a sawmill that had opened in 1664. Whitting's victory would be short-lived. By the early 1700s, there was a leather factory operating on the site of Morse's former mill. He might have been loudly complaining about dams upstream of his corn mill, but in 1683, Nathaniel Whitting partnered with James Draper to build another dam downstream and start a new fulling mill. Fulling is the process by which wool cloth is scoured and thickened to make it stronger and more waterproof. Hundreds of rounded wooden hammers pound a bolt of woolen cloth that is fed slowly through the machine. This was the first textile mill in Dedham, an industry that would be the economic lifeblood of the town, and indeed much of New England, in the coming centuries. The site of the fulling mill would remain in the Whitting family for over 180 years. A fourth dam was built just downstream in 1787, where two Whitting descendants began making copper cents. A third Whitting descendant added another factory to the same dam where he manufactured wire. In 
The Norfolk Cotton Manufactory took over Ezra Morse's old dam in 1807, building a large cotton mill. Cotton was still a novelty in New England in 1807, and Worthington's History of Dedham notes that the inhabitants felt a degree of pride in having a cotton factory in their town, and whenever their friends from the interior visited them, the first thing thought of was to mention that there was a new cotton factory in the town, and they must go and see its curious and wonderful machinery. Soon Benjamin Bussey purchased the cotton mill and Whitting's original mill site to expand into. That original dam is, of course, at Bussey Street, probably a coincidence. The copper scent factory at the fourth dam soon converted to cotton manufacture as well. The cotton boom led to the fifth and final dam across the Motherbrook, even further downstream. Built in 1814 under the auspices of the Dedham Manufacturing Company, this is the dam that now stands in Reedville, and it's the dam that we walk our dog Duke across nearly every day. I know it can get kind of confusing, but the five dam sites are known as privileges, as in the privilege to build a dam. They're numbered from oldest to newest, so you have the first privilege at Bussey Street, where Nathaniel Whitting owned the first dam. Ezra Morse's second privilege is upstream from that. Then back downstream from the first is the third privilege, which started as a fulling mill. Below that is the fourth, founded by Whitting's descendants. And finally the fifth, where we walk the dog. The textile industry, both cotton and wool, would be the main business of the five mill privileges along the Motherbrook well into the 20th century. It was so profitable that it threatened to change the traditional way of life in Dedham. A history of the town published in 1827 laments a coming age in which landowning farmers no longer control the town's politics, instead ceding power to those who live in towns and work in the mills. This is the age in which little compact villages begin to arise in all parts of the country which afford any facilities for manufacturing and mechanical employments. Dedham has two places of this kind, the courthouse village and the mills on the banks of the Motherbrook. A new population is about to be admitted into the town, which must in time considerably affect its character. In point of interest, they will greatly contribute to the prosperity of it. In moral effect, no evil is yet perceived. The means of subsistence are greatly increased, and a wider field is opened for the various talents of men, and we can now perceive the utility of that policy which encourages the manufacturing establishments of this country by protecting duties. That manufacturing village along the banks of the Motherbrook is now known as Reedville, and it's where your humble hosts live. The Hyde Park Historical Society records how the name evolved over time. The locality now known as Reedville was as early as 1655 called the Low Plain, and after it became a part of Dedham, was known for years by the name of Dedham Low Plain. When the school district was there established, it naturally came to be known as Low Plain District. By the mid-19th century, the mills were all important in Dedham Low Plain, and they were looking for a new name. James Reed was one of the principal proprietors of the cotton mill at the Fifth Privilege, and he gave his name to the neighborhood that was quickly growing up around the mill. School records fixed the date when the modern name was adopted. October 8, 1847 voted that the name of Low Plain School District be changed to that of Reedville. The mill at the time was owned by a corporation called the Dedham Manufacturing Company. The historians of Dedham were right to fret about the growing political power of the mill workers, but they misjudged the change that was coming. The workers in Reedville didn't take over Dedham from the existing leaders, 
Instead, they left the town of Dedham entirely. The residents of Reedville joined together with people in the Fairmont Hill neighborhood in Milton and in a settlement along the Boston and Providence Railroad tracks in Dorchester near the Neponset River. They petitioned the legislature, and on April 22, 1868, the new town of Hyde Park was incorporated. Textiles, water power, and the Motherbrook remained centrally important to the new town of Hyde Park. A promotional poster commissioned in 1890 shows a bird's-eye view of the town, oriented to put the mills along the Motherbrook and the Neponset front and center. At the time, the mill at the fifth privilege is identified as belonging to BB&R Night Cotton, which you might know better as Fruit of the Loom. Dedham got into the water power racket early with their development of the Motherbrook, but communities downstream on the Charles were quick to follow. Newton, Waltham, and Watertown were all heavily industrialized with a rapid succession of dams crisscrossing the river, as any modern kayaker can attest. And as textile mills came to dominate the economies of all these towns, they began to look jealously at the water diverted into the Motherbrook, as unfairly decreasing the amount of power that they could harness at their own dam sites. Their attitude was summed up in a much later editorial in the Boston Globe. It was the most audacious attempt of robbery ever recorded in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It was the effort made by Dedham to actually steal the River Charles. The bold pirates built a canal from the headwaters of the Charles across to the Neponset River, and by widening and deepening this Mother Brook, they were gradually robbing their neighboring town of its beautiful waterway. By the 1790s, the owners of mills along the Charles began petitioning the state legislature for relief. As a public waterway, the river was treated as de facto state property, and the Charles proprietors complained that they were suffering from the deviation of its natural course. The proprietors of the mills on the Motherbrook and on the Neponset River, which benefited from the increased flow introduced from the Motherbrook, petitioned the legislature right back. All sides sued one another, and in 1809, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled that the diversion of water into the Motherbrook should not exceed one quarter of the total volume of the Charles River. The Motherbrook proprietors weren't happy with this outcome and managed to talk the SJC into staying the enforcement of their order. Both sides continued litigating and negotiating and finally reached an agreement in 1831. A historical sketch of the Motherbrook, published in 1900, outlines the agreement, which is still in effect today. Finally, an agreement was entered into between the proprietors of Mills on Mill Creek and Neponset River and the proprietors of Mills upon Charles River on December 3, 1831, and filed in the Norfolk Records, which fixed the proportion of water as one-third to the owners of the Mills on Mill Creek and two-thirds to the owners upon Charles River. This agreement is still in force today and governs the division of water, which shall be allowed to flow into the Mother Brook. The sills were fixed in both streams, and provision was made, whereby either party could have an adjustment made of the sills, if they considered themselves aggrieved to the amount of water, by due procedure. Today, the sill fixed at the divergence of the Charles River and the Motherbrook has been replaced by a mechanical floodgate that can be adjusted to let more or less water into the Motherbrook depending on water levels in the Charles. It's a signal of just how much has changed along the Motherbrook in the past century. First, the independent town of Hyde Park is gone. Like Roxbury, Dorchester, Charlestown, Brighton, and West Roxbury a few decades earlier, Hyde Park voted to be annexed to Boston and ceased to exist in 1912. 
By the teens and 20s, the textile industry was in decline across New England and around the country. One by one, the mills along the Motherbrook went out of business. Today, the first privilege is a park and playground, with a small stone and a plaque to mark the site of the first mill in this important industrial corridor. The mill buildings at the second privilege house a medical supply distributor. A strip mall and a Dunkin' Donuts sit on the site of the third privilege. The beautiful stone mill buildings surrounding the tall dam at the fourth privilege have been converted to condos. And the fifth privilege is maintained by the DCR as a last-minute addition to the Stony Brook Reservation, currently undergoing what seems to be a policy of benign neglect. Once, there were big plans for the Mother Brook. In the early 20th century, recreation coexisted with industry. A 1915 article describes that Near the railroad bridge, several small boathouses are erected, and the town of Dedham has built a substantial bathhouse that is well patronized by boys. Though we suspect that they just didn't understand that swimming in an industrial canal was a bad idea. By the 1960s, the mill pond at the fifth privilege had been drained, and the owner was seeking permission to build a strip mall on the site. The DCR stepped in to purchase the land, cleaned up a junkyard, dredged out silt and fill, rebuilt the breach dam, and published an ambitious plan. Opportunities will be available for the provision of facilities for boating, picnicking, hiking, and other types of active recreation. Assuming eventual improvement in the quality of water in the Mother Brook, the report urges the construction of facilities for swimming in the pond. I did see people swimming in the old mill pond one time, but for the most part, it's become a haven for ducks, beavers, coyotes, and fishermen. It might be fun to catch some fish along the Mother Brook, but as you might guess, it's probably not a good idea to eat too many of them. After over 300 years of industrial use, the Mother Brook was intensely polluted by the mid-20th century. Over the years, everything from gasoline to PCBs to raw sewage has been leached into the stream. In recent years, water quality on the Charles River has made a remarkable comeback, even being rated safe for swimming along much of the river. The Mother Brook has had a much slower recovery. Though the state of the brook has improved, it still has a long way to go. I volunteer as a water monitor with the Neponset River Watershed Association during the summer months. Reviewing the preliminary data from our 2017 program, the Mother Brook remains one of the most polluted tributaries of the Neponset being unsafe for both swimming and boating, and containing unsafe levels of E. coli bacteria. Interestingly, the Motherbrook follows a pattern of contamination that is opposite that in most of the rest of the watershed. Most waterways are more polluted in wet weather, when runoff washes contaminants and sewage overflow from the surrounding area into the river. The Motherbrook, however, is considerably less contaminated when it rains, when the floodgate separating it from the Charles is open to alleviate the chance of flooding downstream on the Charles, allowing clean Charles River water to course down the Mother Brook. If you'd like to visit the Mother Brook, the easiest place to see it is at Fairview Cemetery in Hyde Park, which is also the final resting place of Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who was featured in episode 18. However, one of the most interesting spots to visit is the floodgate itself that controls the flow of water from the Charles into the Mother Brook. To get there, get on the VFW Parkway headed south out of Boston into Dedham. Just after you cross the town line, you'll see the Dedham Mall on your left. After you pass the Uno's Restaurant at 270 Providence Highway in Dedham on your left, pull into a very small parking area on the right side. A small brick shed houses the controls and motors that raise and lower the floodgate, 
and you'll see the water rushing over its lip into the mother brook. Next, we clear up some fake news from 1890 about Vikings on the Charles. Have you ever walked down Com Ave from Mass Ave toward Kenmore Square and noticed the large statue of Leif Erikson in the promenade just before Charles Gate? It seems a little bit out of place among the other statues along the Com Ave promenade of people like Revolutionary War General John Glover, Phyllis Wheatley, or Abigail Adams. What is legendary Viking Leif Erikson doing alongside all these statues of people with local ties? Well, in the late 19th century, a lot of people believed that Leif Erikson also had local ties. The ancient Viking sagas tell of a settlement called Vinland, a place rich with timber and grapes that expeditions from Iceland and Greenland sailed to under Leif Erikson. In the 1870s, a chemist and Harvard professor named Eben Horsford became convinced that Vinland was not a myth. It was a real place that existed in North America. Horsford was rich, having made his fortune by inventing a double-acting baking powder that made better bread. He used his wealth to indulge his interest in the supposed Viking history of New England. Early European maps of North America from the late 1500s and very early 1600s show a great river in New England, marked on the maps as Norumbega. As he poured over the maps and sagas, Horsford became convinced that the Norumbega of legend was actually the mighty Charles River. His money and influence helped bring an earlier idea for a statue of Leif Erikson to fruition in 1887, and shortly thereafter he discovered the site of Leif Erikson's house at a point along the banks of the Charles in Cambridge called Jerry's Landing. He installed a stone tablet there marking the spot, which was conveniently just a few blocks from his home on Brattle Street. In 1890, he claimed to have discovered a large Norse city along the banks of the Charles in Newton and Weston, near where Comav crosses the river in Auburndale. He speculated that up to 10,000 Norsemen had called the area home, and he erected a large stone tower on the western side of the river at a spot where he said there had been a Viking fort. The city, he imagined, would have supported itself by exporting fish and valuable oak burls back to Iceland and Greenland. Oak burls, as an aside, remain valuable. In 2012, Boston police arrested a Burl bandit who had been targeting trees in parks around Boston. Burls are prized by woodworkers and sculptors for their erratic grain and unique shapes. As Horsford became more and more obsessed with the Norse history of the Charles, he convinced himself that he had discovered a network of dams and canals that the Vikings had created. These structures were mostly natural features and some recent structures that he had misidentified. His earlier structures were almost all just natural outcroppings of rock that his enthusiasm convinced him to identify as the structures that he wished they were. In a few cases, he did in fact find and excavate colonial-era stone foundations, but he destroyed any colonial artifacts in trying to dig under them for evidence of imaginary Vikings. Eben Horsford died in 1893, but in 1960, archaeologists made a discovery that partially redeems him. They discovered a Viking settlement in Newfoundland that corresponds roughly to the time period described in the sagas as Leif Erikson's period of discovery. They found nine house sites and enough artifacts to definitively call it a Norse settlement. This is still the only known Viking settlement in North America. So Horsford was right to believe the sagas, he was just a few hundred miles off course. And finally, canoodling. During a late 19th century canoe craze, 
recreational canoeing became Boston's hottest leisure time activity. Young lovers took advantage of the privacy and intimacy of a canoe to engage in a little bit of illicit romance, leading a humorless state police agency to ban kissing in canoes on the Charles River. A 1903 tourist guide to Boston describes the experience of taking a trolley from Copley Square, out Commonwealth Avenue, to Newton. It gushes about the well-groomed road, the immaculate lawns and houses, and the swift and smooth operation of the trolley. Finally, it describes the objective of this day trip. Our terminus is the favorite pleasure ground called Norumbega Park, where the trolley company has provided on the shore of the stream a variety of attractions for many tastes. An open-air theater, an extensive menagerie, a cafe, and a large boathouse where canoes and rowboats may be hired. A launch plies the river between the park and Waltham, making hourly trips daily, afternoon, and evening. Canoeing is the all-engrossing sport on this part of the river, and just around the bend to our left is the Riverside Recreation Ground. We cannot see it, for a high-wooded promontory shuts it off from our view. But we may take a canoe and paddle up through the stone arch of the Weston Bridge, and in a few minutes we shall be in the thick of the fleet at Riverside where on a pleasant afternoon or evening the water is often so densely covered that one might almost cross the stream by stepping from one canoe to another. Frequently during the summer, the fleet parades, decorated with lanterns, bunting, and flowers. The grounds and boathouses are extensive and well-equipped, and nearby are the houses of the Newton Boat Club, the Boston Canoe Club, and the Boston Athletic Association, whose large membership helps to swell the crowds upon the river on these occasions. Canoeing didn't start out as a leisure activity. Long, narrow craft that taper at either end have been used by cultures around the world for millennia. One of the earliest examples was discovered along the Euphrates River Valley and dated to 4000 BCE. Canoes were used by Native Americans as a highly practical way to navigate the rivers, lakes, and near-shore waters across North America. And after European contact, they continued to be the most efficient way to move people and goods on many waterways especially in Canada. The French fur trade became so tightly entwined with the use of canoes that the word voyageur was coined, to refer specifically to the men who made their living through hauling furs by canoe. Recreational canoeing was born in the mid-19th century, and though canoes were mainly identified with North America, the rise in recreational canoeing was a British phenomenon. In 1858, a Scottish author named John McGregor went on vacation, camping in Canada and in the northern U.S. On this trip, he was introduced to canoes, which his guides used to get him and his gear to remote sites in the wilderness. McGregor was hooked. After he returned to the U.K., he began building his own canoes and paddling them on the rivers and canals around Britain and around Europe. Under the pseudonym Rob Roy, he published the 1866 book A Thousand Miles in the Rob Roy Canoe on the Rivers and Lakes of Europe and he founded a canoe club later that year. A canoe craze swept Britain in the 1870s, with clubs and competitions springing up around the country. In the following decade, the craze made it back to the United States, where it quickly took root along the Charles River near Boston. The Charles had been an important avenue for boat transportation before and after European contact, and it was dammed for industrial purposes from the beginning of the 1700s. In 1812, a huge dam was built across the Charles at Moody Street in Waltham that dwarfed all the previous efforts. As a Metropolitan Parks Commission report would later explain, 
It was not until after the river had ceased to be useful as a highway for the conveyance of merchandise and lumber that dams were built in the mainstream itself. These dams were originally constructed in accordance with the terms of an act of the general court, by which it was sought to encourage manufacturing. With this purpose in view, the Commonwealth practically made a present to the manufacturers of as much common property in the rivers and lakes of the state as they required for establishing of manufacturing by water power. The dam was a boon to the growing number of recreational canoeists a few decades later, who paddled along the section of river that was known as the Lakes District. It formed a six-mile-long lake that reached from Moody Street in Waltham, upstream through Weston and Newton, almost to Newton Lower Falls. There were many bins, coves, and islands along miles of lakeshore. In the late 19th century, public transportation began to open up the suburbs for recreation, as historic Newton points out. By the end of the century, the streetcars were electrified, and the scale of streetcar transportation became not just local, but metropolitan. Streetcar franchises enjoyed a financial boom. New projects flourished, and in 1895, the Commonwealth Avenue Street Railway extended its service over tracks in the median of the new boulevard, through Newton, to Walnut Street, and the next year to Auburndale. At the same time, changing patterns of work led to the rise of the weekend, so people had more free time to spend exploring the countryside. Some of them were spending that time on dates. Prior to this time, courtship mainly consisted of a young gentleman calling on a young lady in her home, at her invitation. During this period, courtship patterns shifted and gave rise to the modern concept of a date, in which a man and a woman would engage in an activity together outside the home and unchaperoned. As Boston grew rapidly and the suburbs urbanized, the state began to buy land for parks along the Charles River. In 1893, a new agency was formed to buy and protect open space, known as the Metropolitan Parks Commission. Within a few years, they controlled vast tracts of land in and around Boston, from the Middlesex Fells to the Blue Hills. In a report about Boston parks prepared for the 1900 Paris Exposition, the commission outlines how it's protecting the banks of the Charles. Along the Charles River, takings were recommended from Boston to Newton Lower Falls, including territory upon both banks, forming nearly a continuous ribbon. Acquisitions have been made which include all those recommendations and which have reserved sufficient additional territory to extend the realm of public ownership nearly to Dedham. Over 560 acres are included in these lands, exclusive of banks restricted but not taken. Dating culture, the rise of the weekend, new suburban parks, and access to public transportation all collided at the end of the 19th century and turn of the 20th century to make the Lakes District along the Charles River one of the most popular weekend destinations. The canoe craze hit its peak right around the turn of the 20th century. A 1902 Metropolitan Parks Commission report said, The use of the upper river for boating continues to increase. There are at least 3,000 canoes in regular use in this section of the river during the season. That quote in the 1903 tourist guide about crossing the river by stepping from one canoe to another wasn't that far from the truth. In the show notes this week, we'll have a link to a short film shot in 1904 by the Thomas Edison Company. Notice that I didn't say by Thomas Edison. He was good enough at taking credit for the achievements of others. We don't need to do that for him. The film's about two minutes long, and it shows the Charles River just choked with young people in scores of canoes. A souvenir pamphlet said, 
Without doubt, no other sport in New England has made the wonderful advances that have been made in canoeing. And nowhere in the world is the canoeing interest so great as on our own Charles River. Here ten years ago were to be found comparatively few canoes. Now, within a distance of four miles, there are nearly 5,000. While above the falls, in the clubs and houses extending far above South Natick, may be found thousands more. These thousands of canoes led to a cottage industry along the river. There were factories that made canoes, and there were workshops where you could learn to build your own. There were dance halls and amusements, but above all, there were boathouses, many of which were advertised in that very same pamphlet. Clustered around the Commonwealth Avenue bridge over the river in Newton's Auburndale, boathouses lined both banks of the river. They were mostly graceful structures, long and narrow, with the fronts facing the street and the rear opening up directly onto docks on the river. Many offered canoes for rent by the hour or by the day, which was perfect for the urbanite arriving by trolley for a day on the water with his sweetheart. Some offered long-term storage for rent, so after you built or bought your own canoe, you could keep it in a boathouse and take it out on the river any time. By the mid-1880s, a guidebook would gush, At Riverside are the clubhouses of the Newton Boat Club and the Boston Canoe Club, with the Partolo and Robertson boathouses, where visitors may hire yachts, canoes, wherries, lapstrakes, randans, whitehall boats, steam launches, and other craft. One of the large boathouses at Riverside was operated by the Boston Athletic Association. Today, the BAA is most widely known as the organizer of the Boston Marathon, but they have a long history of promoting sports and fitness activities of all kinds. Their boathouse in Weston was a perfect example of this, allowing BAA members access to the health benefits of paddling. They had a 20-acre compound, with football fields, baseball diamonds, tennis courts, and, of course, a track. For $2 a year, members could berth a canoe at the BAA boathouse. Right next door, an entrepreneur started the Riverside Recreation Grounds, a 40-acre complex of sports fields, tennis courts, and swimming pools. It was all tied together with yet another boathouse. While developments on the western side of the river focused on wholesome athletics, the Newton Shore hosted Norumbega Park, which had a much more carnal atmosphere. Named after an ancient Viking settlement that an eccentric local businessman imagined along the river, Norumbega Park advertised itself as Boston's famous pleasure resort. In 1897, the Commonwealth Avenue Street Railway Company opened the park to try to tempt more riders into taking their trolleys all the way to the end of the line, and admission was included in your trolley fare. In the early years, Norumbega could boast New England's largest zoo and theater, and it had a carousel, a penny arcade, and, of course, the requisite boathouse, where visitors could rent a canoe for the day. Famous chefs prepared lavish meals in the park's restaurants, while vaudeville acts provided entertainment in the theater. Over the years, it added more attractions, like a Ferris wheel, bumper cars, and a large ballroom where big bands would perform for a nationally syndicated radio show with hordes of <gasps> city people descending on Leafy, Weston, and Newton every weekend, it's little wonder that the Metropolitan Parks Commission police wanted to keep order. They constructed their own boathouse right next door to Norumbega Park, a beautiful stone and timber structure that still stands today, right next to the Comav Bridge over the river. They had a watchtower and a motorized launch that were mostly used for life-saving, at least at first. In 1902, the agency reported, 
The river has been patrolled in boats, as before. 80 cases of upsets from boats have been reported. 36 of these were actual rescues from the water by the police. The others have been brought into the office, or have come in themselves for assistance after getting ashore. Last winter, a young woman was drowned at Waltham while skating. One drowning accident also occurred during the summer from the upsetting of a canoe. The three other occupants of the canoe were rescued by the officer on patrol. That mission changed the very next year. As historian Thomas McMullen put it, In 1903, the Park Commission and its police force, in part citing safety concerns, embarked on a program to change the behavior of young canoeists on the river. In August, at the height of the canoeing season, the MPC announced new rules of conduct for boaters. The most significant was Rule Number 1, which forbade activities such as drinking, gambling, and most important, any obscene or indecent act. The MPC interpreted this final prohibition to mean that couples could no longer lie down in canoes, nor could they kiss. Young people had flocked to the Charles in no small part because of the privacy and intimacy they could find in a canoe on the river. In an era before cars provided suitors with a private space on wheels, and when prying eyes were everywhere in the city, an afternoon alone on the Charles must have seemed like heaven. Canoe historian Roger Young said, To go canoeing on the weekend was pretty much what you did with your best girl. There weren't a whole lot of motor cars around at that time. You could go bicycling, but to go out canoeing was the thing. And author Hunter Oatman Stanford notes that adolescents took to the waters with the urgency of salmon fighting their way upstream. As early as 1889, authors recognized this element of the Lakes District's appeal. Here, the river is narrow and still flowing between high grassy banks, embroidered with sweetbriar and daisies, and among cool and shadowy thickets and groves, where the young people in their pretty boats enjoy the charms of solitude adieu. Above Riverside there is a little more of wildness, with here and there a fallen trunk, over which luxuriant vegetation is scrambled, jutting into the stream, and making incomparable nooks of shade in which our boating parties seem to have a strong and perfectly natural propensity for mooring. When the MPC police began enforcing the new rules on August 15, 1903, there was public outcry and a sense of ridicule from around the country. As the first arrests were announced, National Wire Services picked up the story. A Reading, Pennsylvania paper ran this story on August 19th. Young couple arrested for violating rule of Boston's Park Commission. Lovemaking has been prohibited on the Charles River by the Metropolitan Park Commission, and hereafter, the fellow who takes his best girl on a canoeing trip must keep a watchful eye out for the police. About 4,000 canoe owners between Waltham and Dedham are interested. One couple has been arrested. They are Miss Flora Smith of New York and Matthew A. Peterson of Dorchester. They were arrested near the Weston Bridge late Saturday afternoon. Superintendent Haberly of the Charles River Reservation and Patrolman Coombs of the Metropolitan Police Force were looking for violations of the law when they saw the young man and the girl kissing in a canoe. This, they maintain, is a violation of Rule Number 1 of the Park Commission, which says that no improper actions shall be carried on. Peterson's lawyer says that perhaps he did kiss the young woman, and if he did, it is no crime. Canoe owners are indignant about the new rule, and petitions are being circulated, which will eventually reach Governor Bates. 
Superintendent Haberly says that all he desires is to keep the disorderly element from the river. McMullinigan describes how the Canoe Kids united in acts of protest against the new rules. The response to the arrest was swift and sure. Signing a petition addressed to the owners of area boathouses, over 350 canoeists threatened to remove their canoes if the owners didn't pressure the Park Commission to change its policy. The number of canoeists on the river dropped precipitously, particularly among young women. Those canoeists who did venture onto the Charles refused to sit up straight. The Boston Daily Globe reported that young women seemed particularly bold in taunting the plainclothes police to take action against them. Canoeists massed at the park police station and hurled taunts at those inside. On the weekend of August 21st to 23rd, more significant protests were mounted. On Friday night, all up and down the river, couples continued to lie down in their canoes and singled other canoeists with the call, Cheese it! Here's the cop! Joining in the protest, young boys shot beans at the police boats from a railroad bridge. On Saturday night, a band concert was held at one of the boathouses. Scores of couples attended, defiantly lying under blankets in their canoes. When the police launch approached the area, it was met with jeers, hisses, and pounding on the canoes. The band struck up the tune, Please Go Away and Let Me Sleep. The next day, the protesters took more direct action. Canoeists, both men and women, massed below Superintendent Haberly's office, which overlooked the river. They sprawled out in disregard of the MPC rules, and set up phonographs outside the superintendent's office, playing, as the Post put it, jesting songs into his ear. Up and down the river, canoeing couples baited the police, playing love songs, throwing kisses at the officers, and disobeying the sit-up rule. It may sound like a 60s love-in, but keep in mind that this all happened in 1903. The park commissioners were unmoved, telling the press, it's not a very nice spectacle to see a couple of opposite sexes lying in the bottom of a boat with a blanket thrown over them. Local ministers and newspapers blamed wild young men from the city, who would bring their unsuspecting dates out to the suburbs to get them liquored up and take advantage of them. However, only about a third of the people arrested under the anti-kissing rules were from Boston. The rest were from the supposedly upstanding suburbs along the river, such as Wellesley, Dover, Newton, and Waltham. Meanwhile, the press continued to have a field day. Of the $20 fine, the Herald said, At that rate, it is estimated that over a million dollars worth of kisses are exchanged at that popular canoeing resort every fine Saturday night and Sunday. The Boston Sunday Journal published a front-page editorial cartoon captioned, Park Commission Drives Cupid from the Charles. Within a month, the boathouses along the river in Newton and Weston announced that their business had fallen by 50% or more. The young people of Boston had found an easy way to defeat the puritanical prudishness of the Metropolitan Parks Commission. Move their canoodling to Dedham. Dedham's just a few miles upriver from Newton, and it also boasts miles of languid riverbanks, with plenty of shadowy thickets and groves. The Dedham Boat Club was an easy five-minute walk from Dedham Station. Best of all, the Metropolitan Parks Commission police had no jurisdiction along the Charles and Dedham, as the banks were not parkland. Two years later, a large ballroom called Mosley's on the Charles opened up in Dedham, and more boathouses would follow. Soon, the Riverdale section of Dedham was the center of gravity for Boston's canoe craze. There were canoe liveries, carousels, 
and a steam-powered organ called a calliope. Hundreds of people would gather on the banks to watch races between local canoe clubs. In the meantime, boathouse owners at Riverside and Newton complained that the MPC had killed the sport of canoeing. In the end, the automobile killed the pastime of canoeing, at least as it was known at the turn of the last century. If young people flocked to canoes in order to enjoy some privacy and intimacy, imagine how they felt about the Ford Model T, which was basically a bedroom on wheels. By World War I, young couples who might previously have kissed in a canoe were searching out secluded lovers' lanes. During the Depression, many boathouses went out of business, as thrifty canoe owners began storing their crafts at home, or sold them outright. In March of 1936, intense rains caused floods across most of New England, and the Charles River wasn't spared. Many of the remaining boathouses were swept away, and nobody cared to replace them. Riverside Recreation Center closed in 1958, and Norumbega Park closed in 1963. A series of suspicious fires destroyed the boathouses, dance halls, and restaurants in the Riverside area between 1959 and 1965. Today, a Marriott stands on the site of the amusement park at Norumbega. By the mid-1960s, there was a growing public awareness of the sad state of the Charles River. Untreated sewage and waste from two centuries of industrial use flowed through the river, which earned the bad reputation it got from the Standell's song, Dirty Water. After a half-century of efforts by citizen groups like the Charles River Watershed Association, the Charles has now rebounded enough to enjoy something of a second canoe and kayak craze in recent decades. Things have improved to the point that the Charles River Conservancy is planning a public swimming park for the Charles River Basin, an area that was once one of the most polluted waterways in the nation. When you think of the Charles River today, you probably picture the Charles River Basin, those few miles between Watertown Square and the old Charles River Dam at the Museum of Science. When the state was considering whether to build that dam, there seemed to be very little chance that it would ever be used for pleasure craft. Here's what the commission had to say. The only noteworthy employment of the Lower Charles for boating is for shells, and those who row in these have little cause for complaint. Fifteen inches depth of water is considered sufficient in the rowing tanks of Harvard, and two feet in the river should be ample for rowing of all kinds. Of course, these days, on any warm afternoon, you'll see the small sailboats of community boating tacking back and forth across the river. The rowing shells that plied the river a century ago are still there, and they're accompanied today by a few canoes and a whole lot of kayaks. However, if your only frame of reference is the basin, you need to get out and explore upriver. The lakes region we talked about today is still accessible by bus and commuter rail, and if you have a car, there are dozens of places to launch a canoe or kayak along about 40 miles of river upstream from the basin. You can still see a couple of relics from the last canoe craze. Mosley's on the Charles is still a ballroom and event hall in Dedham, and the old NPC Police Department boathouse still stands on the banks of the river in Newton. Ironically, the headquarters of the crackdown on kissing in canoes is now a canoe and kayak rental business. And that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about the Motherbrook, the lack of Vikings on the Charles, and canoodling, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 090. We'll have notes about each of the stories we covered this week with original sources 
pictures, maps, and more. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to discuss Boston's Pickwick disaster, which was blamed on the Charleston, the Dance of Death.